The reading for this morning is taken from Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And we'll be focusing in particular on the verses 10 to 12. So up to this point in the book of Nehemiah, after a long period of oppression, peace has finally settled on the city and a book has been written with the names of all of the the people who returned, a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return. There was much rejoicing at this time. And we read at the end of, the ch- of chapter 7, when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now beginning in chapter 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square, that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate, from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, Maaseiah, and at his left hand Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Maaseiah, Kelitza, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And so we come to our text, the verses 10 to 12. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. 
and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities in Jerus- and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until the day the children of Israel had not done, until that day the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, In the 1730s, there was a movement which shook the very foundations of North America. Beginning in what was then the small town of Northampton, Massachusetts, a bold minister named Jonathan Edwards began to preach the doctrines of grace with conviction. Speaking of the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of men, and the need for repentance, he stirred the hearts of thousands. Men, women, and children, old and young, people from every walk of life, every cultural background, began to turn to God in numbers that had never before been seen in North America. This movement grew, not just staying there in the little town of Northampton, but it grew and spread across much of North America under the leadership of men like George Whitfield and Samuel Davies. And with this movement growing, with the growth of this, uh, under these subsequent preachers, was born a movement which was later named the First Great Awakening. A movement which would leave a permanent impression on the North American psyche, shaping it for generations to come. But, in truth, that was not the first revival the world had ever known, although it was named the First Great Awakening. It wasn't the first revival the world had ever known, nor was the revival that it grew out of, the one that was based in England. It was, in fact, one of many revivals that God had used to shake and shape his people for millennia. Even in the days of the Old Testament do we find revivals. One such we find in our passage today. This chapter is the first of a series of chapters in which the people under the care of Ezra and Nehemiah turn as one body to God. Now, last time we were in the book of Nehemiah, we spoke about how the pause in opposition that was faced by Nehemiah and the people of Judah marked a turning point in this book. The walls were finished. Finally, the people had time to shift their focus from the building of the city to the people of the city. Finally, they were able to focus on the reason for the city's very existence. 
they were able to fully devote their time to preparing for worship. That was a pivotal chapter. The people were numbered. A record was named of the exiles, was made of the exiles who had returned. God's faithfulness to his promises and to his glory were made very evident in the eyes of the people of God. And now we see them responding. A call goes out throughout the city. The people begin to gather in. And we see them coming together as one man in the open square in front of the water gate. Now, this open square would have been a place that was full of buildings back in the day. But now, they had cleaned out all the rubble of the destroyed city, and there was a big open space. And this place, which had previously marked the destruction of the city, now became a place where they had the opportunity to gather together for worship in numbers that they wouldn't have been able to sustain many years ago when the city was still intact. It gave the people the opportunity to gather with willing hearts. And now Ezra is called to preach and others are called in to read God's word. And so with this atmosphere, a revival is born. And so we'll see a revival in Jerusalem. We'll see, first of all, the conviction by the word of God. And second, finding strength in the joy of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something interesting at the beginning of the chapter. When we are looking at the gathering, we can see that it's not Nehemiah that calls the people together. It's not the governor of the city, Hanani. It's not the priesthood. No, in fact, it's the people themselves as a body who gather together and tell Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses. In sending him, it's as his office as scribe that he goes out to gather the information that he's helped preserve all this time, but he gets to experience the joy of returning to the people in his office of priest. He has the joy of returning to apply the word to the lives of the people, the people with whom this call has begun. For the first time since the beginning of the book, the people of God are the ones that really take the initiative. For the first time, it's not Nehemiah or Ezra that are spearheading the effort to return the people to God, but it's the people themselves who are reacting. The leaders have done their duty. They've been faithfully obedient to God. And the people seeing the impact of that leadership and seeing the effects that the faithful following of God has on the hearts of people have their own hearts stirred by the Holy Spirit. And now he begins his work in their hearts as a body in earnest. Now, with that in, on our minds, let's take a quick step back to compare that, to examine Christianity today. Today, sometimes we lose sight of this, this movement from the body. We lose sight of the body's involvement we have this idea that as long as programs are running 
elders are meeting. People are setting up workshops and life renewal groups. And other things are going on. Everything is okay. The coordinators have everything under control. And as long as the church has everything running smoothly, we should be fine. But is that what we find in Scripture? The Spirit of Christ tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 12, that we have been baptized into one body. And in verses 14 and following, it speaks about how the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. Now this references involvement with people in the body. But as members of the congregation, we are all members of this body. This, while it is speaking of us not being able to cut off any particular member, it also speaks of us not having the option of sitting back and doing our own thing. We can't say, I'm not an eye, so I don't need to be involved. Or, I'm not a hand, so I don't need to take part. God calls us to take individual responsibility for our actions, for our involvement. We may have different ways of being involved. Some in home with the kids, some on the job site, some in the office. There are a million and one ways in which we can take part in the body, in the church family. But we are all called to be personally involved here. And we see the same in our passage today. In our passage today, it focuses in specifically on faith. Faith is not something that we can delegate to others. We cannot simply leave that to those who are in positions of leadership. We can't blame dry Bible studies, uninteresting pastors, or inattentive elders. Our faith is something that we are called to take personal responsibility for. And that's what we see in action in our passage today. The congregation has come to repentance. The people desire revival, personally and as a body. And in order to do so, they direct their eyes to one place. They direct their eyes to God. They begin by calling Ezra to bring the law. The law, in this case, would be the Torah, the first five books of Moses. And they would be reading through that. They bring them before the assembly of men and women. But it's interesting. It's not just the men and women who gather together. It's not just the men who gather to hear the word proclaimed. It's not just the women. But in our passage, we read that all who could hear, all with understanding, gathered. And at that point, it, that point is not just mentioned once, but it's mentioned twice in verses 2 and verse 3. The Torah was read from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Everyone, man, woman, and child, came to hear the law proclaimed. From the break of day until noon, they stand there. 
Each of them is straining to make out the words that were being spoken to them, making absolutely sure that not one single word that fell from the mouths of the speakers could escape their attention. As they begin their worship in earnest, Ezra gives the blessing before the reading of Scripture, similar to the ones that we have today, before our worship service. And deeply moved by the words of this blessing, the people give a threefold response. First of all, their cry, Amen, Amen, emphasizes their agreement with what's just been said. They raise their hands up and they show to all that they are leaning on their God, that they're demonstrating their need for their God and their dependence to His Word. And they express no doubt that he's going to be able to answer this need through the proclamation of Scripture that is about to follow. And finally, they prostrate themselves. They prostrate themselves on hearing the words of God. It weighs them down. And they are in humble adoration before their God. We read in verse 8, So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense. These would be the people who are up there with Ezra on the platform that's elevated above everybody so that they can easily see him. Now every effort was made that the people could understand what was being proclaimed so that there would be no doubt what God was telling his people. And as the people hear the word proclaimed, we hear the climax of the passage in the last part of verse 8. The people understood the reading. They have personally experienced these words. To them, the words, the truth of the words of Jesus as he spoke them in Matthew 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God has suddenly blossomed in their lives. They have been humbled. They and their forefathers hadn't taken God's word seriously. For years they hadn't submitted themselves to God's word as they should have. And now they are hearing God's word as if for the first time. The people of Judah have come to realize that his word is the only hope for true life. And they hunger after it. They hunger after it like those who are starving realizing what they've been missing all these years, what they and their forefathers had scorned, and the seriousness of what was being read to them, realizing all of that, they wept, and they submitted themselves to the word of God. Oh, how often it happens that the people of God lose sight of the preciousness of God's word. God's word is life. When Jesus Christ directed his people to his word, saying, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he's directing them to the life that can be found within it. He's ultimately directing them to himself. He is showing them that it has real food in it for them, that it has real sustenance, and that it can lift them up. Let us find joy in the preciousness of God's word and direct our eyes to the only one in whom we can find life. And that life will turn our weeping into joy.
having heard God's word and being cut to the heart, the people wept loudly. And for good reason. As we saw, they had lost much time in the past focusing their energies on other things, things that would not truly satisfy, in which there was no life. So, to a certain extent, their response was appropriate. Imagine that for a moment. You've looked back and you've realized that for years, that for years, everything you've done is empty and hollow. That your focus has been completely in the wrong place. And now suddenly you realize that there is something out there, something precious that you want to hold fast to. Something that you've been missing for all this time. Wouldn't that make you weep? You'd feel like your life had been wasted up to that point in time. Wouldn't that make you weep? So to a certain extent, we can see that their response was understandable, that their response was even appropriate. But having mourned that loss and their shortcoming, the people, the people who are in leadership there, they tell them, don't weep anymore. The time for weeping is past. They're soon directed away from themselves and away from their own sorrows. Now, there are two reasons why the people who were in the, in the position of leadership did that, why Ezra and the others did that. The first was because this day was considered holy to the Lord. This wasn't a day just like any other day. This wasn't a day in which we could simply do our own thing. But this was a day that was specifically set aside. And in being specifically set aside, God commanded his people that they rejoice on these days. You can find that reference to this association between feast days, days that are holy, being set aside, and that association between those feast days and joy in passages like Deuteronomy 12, verse 12, and 16, verse 11, where God lays the foundation, the groundwork for these feast days. The reason for this was that these days were linked to a memorial. They were linked with a memorial of God's grace towards his people. These were times when the people looked back and they remembered how God intervened in history. How God saved his people and drew them out of bondage. The second reason that Ezra gives for the people not to be weeping is because of these words. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The word for strength here can be translated as protection or stronghold or fortress. He's saying to them, these laws that you are concerned about are laws which are for the protection of God's covenant people and of God's covenant name. His name is to be glorified by and through his people. You are a precious nation in the eyes of your God, because you are turning to him. You are seeking to abide by these laws. You're seeking to hold fast to this. And because you seek to find refuge in your God, because you seek to have him as your fortress, 
He delights in you. Now you'll find this same mark in every true revival. Once people who have come to a conviction of their sin are faced with the grace of their sovereign God and the magnitude of his mercy, they're brought from sorrow into joy. Their reason for weeping and fear was due to the fact that they've rebelled against God. They've distanced themselves from this God. Because of that, the threats and the promises of judgment that you find in the word were very real for them. But these very same judgments now become their fortress. They now become their protection when they turn to their God. They are their protection because the Lord delights in those who turn to him and rely on him, and he will deliver them. In light of that, how can you but rejoice when you come to the sudden realization that because you turn to God, your debt is canceled and your life is free? How can you keep from rejoicing when a life which was so empty before that you looked back on for years and years, maybe even decades, and you saw this emptiness, this bottomless pit of nothing, now finds itself anchored in the creator of all joy. God's mercy is abundant, and his grace is overflowing to those who turn to him in repentance. So the people eat, and they drink, and they rejoice greatly, because now they truly understand the words that were declared to them. And this makes them want others to share in this celebration as well. They send their portions, it says in our passage, sharing them with those who otherwise wouldn't be able to join in the feast and worship because they were poor. And so begins the Feast of Tabernacles. Days of feasting follow. For the first time in a long time, Israel is back on track, so to speak with their sacrifices and ceremonies. And the reason that they are truly back on track is because of the fact that not only are these taking place, but now they're taking place with the full heart of the people behind them. Every day they scour the word of God, making sure that they get everything right, everything according to the way that God wanted it. They are drinking it up and embracing it as fully as they can. The word of God is precious to them. They are being revived and refreshed. Their conviction of sin has been replaced with joy and the word of God has become life for them. And this isn't just something which is relegated to something that's far in the past, far gone. It's something that can be true for us today here as well. The free offer of grace is there for all. Each Sunday morning you hear the law proclaimed. And each Sunday again you hear the free gift of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. When you are convicted in your hearts by sin, you grieve, and rightfully so. You have grieved your heavenly Father by your actions and are deserving of the punishment the word of God says will descend on all who defy God. 
But in hearing God's word proclaimed, you also hear about the word made flesh, Jesus Christ who came into the world to seek and to save those who are lost. In Jesus Christ, we find our redemption. We weep because our sins were nailed to the cross, and rightly so. But we also rejoice because the joy of the Lord is our strength. This very same word which proclaimed God's wrath, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who bore that wrath for us, that very same word proclaims that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That very same word proclaims that those who turn in faith are embraced as the beloved people of God and brought into his family. We become people on whom God's favor rests, not because of what we've done, but because of his grace being made to be able to carry out works in which he delights. It reminds us of Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, so that he might become the firstborn among many brothers. It was his joy to draw people close to him. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And with that confidence, bought with the blood of Christ, it drives us to hunger and thirst for his word, to thirst for this truth that we are set free. It presses us down to our knees in confession. It spurs us to live for God and gives us the confidence to face life boldly. And with that confidence, bought with the blood of Christ, we are able to find revival. What a reason for festivity. Amen.